Hello, and welcome to another episode of Quilt Buzz, the podcast featuring your favorite folks from across the quiltiverse. I'm Amanda of Broadcloth Studio, and I'm joined by Wendy, the weekend quilter. Hey. And our special guest, Daisy of Warm Folk. Hello. Now, before we jump into all our quilty fun, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Daisy? Sure. Uh, I suppose I'm a second or third generation quilter, but I didn't learn how to thread a sewing machine until I was about 30 years old. I grew up in Alabama and had a previous career working in natural resource management while I lived in California and Montana. And then after I had children, I needed something to pour my energy into and quilting was it. So at this point, it's the thing I've done the longest. So we also know you as Warm Folk on social media. Could you tell us the inspiration behind the name? Sure. Um, My first blog was called Ants to Sugar. Uh, My social scene at that time in my life was full of these scientists from NC State and Raleigh, and I had ants on the brain. So the name was a metaphor for that universal attraction we quilters have for fabric. But when I was moving to Norway, I felt like it just wouldn't translate very well. (laughs) So I wanted something that expressed this human aspect about quilts. Quilts are objects that provide physical warmth, but there's also a lot of emotional and psychological warmth associated with them. So I wanted to work under a label or with a mission of providing both of those things for people. Now, you mentioned that you're living in Norway. Can you tell us you know, what brought you uh, to the country? My husband was on the tenure track at LSU in Baton Rouge, and I was really struggling in the heat and the humidity there. We're mountain people, we're winter people, and neither of those things exist in southern Louisiana. Uh, So he applied for a few jobs and got hired into a tenured position at a university here in Norway. We just celebrated our six-year anniversary a few days ago. Wow, that's awesome. Do you think that there'll be ever any plans to move back to the US or Norway is going to be a permanent spot? At the moment, uh, Norway is permanent. When we moved, we sold the house and the cars and got rid of everything that plugged into the wall. So we went all in. We just decided we're not going to hedge our bets. We're just going to do this. And we've been pretty happy with it. So I think we'll stay. Did you bring your sewing machine over and get all the converters for everything? Uh, yeah, there's a there's a funny story. I, I had a magazine deadline right after we moved, and my husband convinced me that my Janome was going to be okay. It, it wasn't rated worldwide on the back of the machine, but he said that he checked it out and it was fine. But as most of us may do, I did not trust my husband. And so every day I took the huge, like, I don't know, five or seven pounds, um, step up, step down converter. I'm not a real technical person. I don't know the right names for these things, but I would carry it from our apartment to my studio, which was about 10 minutes away. It was the thing that we had for our espresso machine. So after everybody had made their coffee for the day, I would go to work carrying this converter and I'd plug my sewing machine into it so that I could be sure that it would work and I could finish my deadline. And then as soon as the deadline was done, I did a little social media thing where I plugged my machine into the wall and started using it (laughs) just to see if it would explode. And it did not. It was, in fact, fine. Um, The long arm machine, I got some help from some folks in South Carolina on getting the right equipment to be able to use that here. So it, it also came across the ocean with us. 
that would have been pretty interesting in trying to transport a long arm machine across the uh, ocean. <laughs> yeah, it's part of my lecture. It's one of the pictures that I share is how we oh, really? packaged it up and put it in the shipping container. Uh, but uh, you know, going back to the domestic machine, Rebecca Bryan had just moved to the Netherlands and she had a few explosions on her machine with her genome. So oh. I was terrified and I, I, I just couldn't take any chances. But it's nice not to have to carry around a giant converter. Yeah, I can't imagine a machine blowing up in your face while you're sewing. I heard, I heard it was exciting. Yeah. She, she didn't enjoy it. <laughs> That's one way to say it. <laughs> a little like 4th of July at your desk. Yeah, a little, little pop, a little, little smoke. Yeah. So you mentioned that you come from a family of quilters, but you didn't start quilting until you were 30. Yeah. Um, did, how did you learn? Did you learn from your family or did you, were you more self-taught? No, I learned from my mom and, um, you know, I still ask my mom questions. Uh, she, I wanted to make a quilt for a friend of mine's new child. And I said, mom, I need some help. And so we made it out of five inch squares and she was on me at every step. Those are not straight cuts. Those are not straight seams. It's got to be precise. And I was, Oh, it was, uh, we made it through though. And, um, after that, I went to a workshop with Mary Lou Weidman in, uh, in Idaho, Northern Idaho. And at that workshop, Mary Lou taught her wonky approach to birds and flowers and other things. And that was where I just fell in love with quilting. Everything was off. My mom struggled to make things crooked, but I loved it. I was flying through these lopsided asymmetrical stars. Um, so yeah, it's my mom, blogs, books, videos. Um, yeah. And some of it's, I figured out on my own, but I've definitely had a lot of good, good sources of information around me. So from your earlier quilts, how did it evolve to designing and writing your own quilt patterns? Well, a few years after my mom taught me how to make that I spy five inch square quilt for a friend, I was making projects for guild challenges and online swaps. I took pictures to share on my blog and I slowly built a body of work that I could then show quilt shops and fabric manufacturers to ask for fabric sponsorship for projects. And then after that, I started designing machine foundation paper piecing quilt blocks that I sold the patterns for on Craftsy. And then in 2016, I moved on to full quilt designs with a variety of magazines. So uh, you've taught several workshops virtually and in person. Uh, what goes into preparing for a workshop and how do you ensure students get the most out of their time with you? There is so much that goes into preparation. Um, there's the practical preparation that happens before each workshop. I need to completely reorient my studio for teaching instead of creating. So there's a different arrangement of tools and fabrics. I pack up whatever I'm working on and pull out samples and partial blocks for whatever I'll be teaching. We call those partial blocks step outs because they show the various steps of construction. And I almost always need to prepare a few new step outs so that the class can run smoothly. And that's the other aspect of preparation. I, I break down every technique into smaller steps, and then I place those steps into an agenda. It's important to me that a workshop has a nice flow, that people are comfortable and can chat, but that we also stay on track and cover the material and the time allowed, allotted. 
And Wendy, I think you were in my my first Swoopies class at QuiltCon, and I thought everyone was going to hate me for dividing everybody up into groups. I had six groups of four each, and uh, everybody had specific time at the iron. So group one would go, and then two and three, all the way up to six. You had a limited amount of time there. Uh, I felt like a drill sergeant calling time, but I think that people really into, uh, really appreciated an established flow for the class and getting to be busy throughout instead of having long stretches of downtime while you're waiting in line, in a long line at the irons. So in addition to in-person workshops, you also offer a variety of online workshops, including one that is a one-on-one and the student can pick their own topic. So why offer that experience? And has anyone stumped you yet? Yeah. So I added that option mostly because I get asked a lot of Adobe Illustrator questions. That's one of the things that I teach. And I'm really passionate about using Illustrator to design quilts. I always answer an initial question via email for free. I I feel like um, I want quilting to be more and more interesting in this world. And I don't hold my ideas very close. I want to be very generous and give away my anything that I've learned. I want other people to be able to have access to. So I'll yeah, I love answering questions. But then after that, I offer that one on one consultation if people really want me to dig into a design problem with them. I did have one person use it for sewing curved seams. She just wanted a short workshop that was all for her and, and she could schedule it. And, and that worked out well. So it's it's kind of for both. And when did you fall in love with curves? Because we know that's kind of your thing. Yeah, yeah. Curves. Curves are fantastic. Um I saw a friend sewing curves at a retreat at the beach, at a guild retreat, and she made it look fun. And so I got the Elisa back porch templates and sewed up my first curved quilt, which uh, got to hang in QuiltCon in 2016 or 17. Um, But yeah, adding curves to designs was just something that felt super liberating to me. There's something about moving from triangles and rectangles to curves that feels like it's exponentially more interesting. And using a precise shape makes replication so much easier, both for when I'm making my quilts and then when someone else is recreating um, those designs for their own quilt. So even though I was super into improv in my earliest quilts, I've really honed my precision techniques since designing with quarter circle squares. Speaking of curve piecing, um, so you have recently released your second book on quilting with curves, 20 geometric projects. So what's the inspiration behind that and what could readers expect that? Ah, so the inspiration behind the projects in the new book is really varied. There are projects inspired by traditional quilt blocks, um, places I visited, uh, even the electrical wiring in our home in Baton Rouge. Um, Each quilt has its own little story. And I think that readers can expect a broad range of ideas, whether they're inspired to make a quilt exactly as I did by following the pattern, or if they take little bits and pieces of a design to incorporate into their own quilt making. My hope is that people see the designs and think, oh, I wouldn't have thought about arranging things that way, but it makes perfect sense. And are the patterns, is it a range of... um are they created for a range of experience levels or, you know, I mean, I guess the question is like, could beginners, um, you know, dive right into curve piecing if they've never done it before? Yeah, you can definitely dive in. The the technique section of the book follows my workshop format and provides specific tips for achieving accuracy. 
The designs that combine two kinds of shapes, like curves inside of curves or curves and triangles, will be more challenging for beginners. But as a teacher, I've discovered that success is more about how much a quilter likes a design or an idea. It's rarely about matching a project with your perceived skill level. If you love a design, you'll figure it out. You'll finish it. And then for those that haven't tried curve piecing and, you know, maybe they might be intimidated by them, what would you like them to know? I would say jump and the net will appear. Um, Seriously, just ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? And then try anyway. I understand why curves can seem intimidating, but straight seams and curved seams have much more in common than you'd think. And would you suggest um, when you're trying out curve piecing the first time, would you suggest doing that on a scrap to begin with? Well, yes. I think that's a great example of do what I say, not what I do. I admit I am the worst at making a proof of concept before I start something. I just feel like if I'm going to put the effort in, I might as well just, you know, have it count in the end if it works. And so, but yeah, scraps are good. Sure. I always feel like that high stake pressure really makes me uh, yeah, perform exactly. so much better. Yeah. <laughs> Do you use templates when you're creating your curves? Like uh, acrylic templates or? Um, yeah, definitely. I, yeah. Uh, but, but, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Tell me more. <laughs> No, I um I do offer paper templates when I'm teaching a workshop. I'll mail out paper templates. I don't ever want to sell people a piece of plastic they don't need. There's enough plastic in the world, but the plastic and templates are very useful and you can use them again and again and again. And I truly believe that they are the best tool for achieving accuracy. So definitely, I always use uh, acrylic templates when I'm cutting curves, except for when I cut out my fabric on the laser cutter. Oh, that makes that makes yeah. sense. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to like think about that for a hot sec. I was like, "Ooh, a laser you cutter!" I, I, my husband kept saying, "Why don't you cut fabric?" And I convinced him that I had been cutting with my templates for so many years that I was fast and efficient, and it would take too long to put the the digital files in, and then. One quilt called Spinning Tradition was the reason I switched. And I was about a third of the way into cutting about a thousand pieces of fabric. And I realized I should just do this on the laser cutter. And it was magic. See, I've always under the impression with laser cutters that it's built to cut more like um, harder materials like acrylic that I I would have never thought to cut fabric with it, which is... You can cut fabric, you can cut leather, you can can, um, sketch into like corduroy or velour, velvety kinds of things. You can burn a design into a pumpkin pie if you want to. I mean, Mm. (laughs) there's a lot you can do with a laser cutter. Yeah. Did you have the laser cutter first and then, or did you buy it for fabric? Um, I used to get uh, my acrylic templates wholesale in the United States, and then the it got too expensive to do that. So I began to cut them myself at a makerspace in Oslo. And during the pandemic, I didn't have access to the makerspace, but I had a friend of a friend who had a laser cutter, and I filled an order for a quilt shop using his laser cutter. And my husband said, you know, we've probably spent... You you probably bought half of a laser cutter on what you've spent to rent it. Why don't we just get one? And I said, well, I don't want to maintain it. But he maintains the, like, there's a lot involved in 
the accuracy of the laser and calibrating it. Um, but I do everything on the computer that talks to the laser cutter. And of course, I use it for acrylics and fabrics. And what program do you use to link to the laser cutter? Is it like AutoCAD or like a um, like Illustrator? It's something called Lightburn. So I do all the design work in Illustrator. You can in Lightburn, but I don't feel like learning a new program at this point. So I do it all in the program I know, <laughs> convert it to Lightburn, tweak it a little bit to make sure the settings are correct. And then Lightburn communicates to the laser cutter. So what sort of designs or techniques works well with laser cutting? I predict that laser cutting is going to be the next big thing in all aspects of quilting. Uh, the advent of quilting on domestic machines certainly changed things from the world of hand quilting. And then the long arm quilting machines took that to another level. So I think at some point, laser cutters are going to be in our industry the way that long arm quilting machines are. Having said that, uh, all designs and all techniques can benefit from laser cutting, whether it's acrylic rulers or templates or cutting fabric for conventional piecing or definitely cutting complex shapes for applique. Um, laser cutters require an initial investment of time to learn how to make them work, but you can save so much time in the future. And when it comes to like designing your own acrylic templates, what's the What's the moment when you go from your own like paper templates to, you know, the tipping point to deciding to invest in designing an acrylic template? Oh, well, as far as the tipping point goes, I think that some of that's about the number of times that you're going to use them and maybe whether or not you want to monetize that particular design and sell a pattern and have a template to go with it. Um I used a nine inch string as a compass and a nine and a half inch string. One, the, the nine inch string made my concave quarter circle square template piece and the nine and a half inch string made my convex quarter circle square template piece for my very first giant nesting curves quilt. And after a while, I decided uh, this is ridiculous. I need to get a piece of plastic in here. So that was my tipping point. And... Do you find with all the curves that you make, is there a standard size that you keep coming back to again and again that like you'd recommend if someone was going to invest in acrylic templates that that's the first set they buy? I think a six inch curve is perfect. It's, it's counterintuitive, but the smaller the curve, I think the more challenging it can be. Um, the same with the really, really big curves. There's a few more tips to have in mind that will lead to accuracy, but a six inch curve I feel like is a good sweet spot. What are some of your top tips when it comes to designing your own acrylic templates? Spend some time learning how the laser cutter that you have access to performs. I mean, maybe you're using something, maybe you've bought a laser cutter or maybe it's in a makerspace or a lot of public libraries have laser cutters. Some are going to require higher heat settings or uh, lower laser speeds in order to cut a thick material, but be patient with the experimentation process to find the settings that work best for you. Also, it's commonly thought that fabric will be singed at the edges, and that's just not true. The right setting can yield an edge that is as clean as it would be if the material had been cut with scissors, because lasers don't burn the material. I think I might have said that before in my answer, but that's not right. They don't burn the material. They kind of obliterate it. So any singeing that occurs on the edge is going to be a result of heat bouncing back off of the platform that you're on, or it may have to do with the number of layers that you're trying to cut. 
And how do you stabilize the fabric on the laser cutter? Because could it shift while it's cutting? It doesn't usually shift, but there are two factors that help out with that. One of them is sort of a, a vacuum effect that the, the laser cutter can create that holds the material to the bed that you place the material on. And another is um, I have these little round magnets that can um, grip the, the bed through the fabric. So between all that you've got going on right now, between your new book, as well as your lectures and workshops, uh, do you have any fun projects on the horizon that you're able to share with our listeners? Yes, retreats. So I have been thinking a lot about what kinds of value I can offer people. And organizing events is something I've done my whole life. Uh, first in the woods with kids looking for outdoor recreation and environmental education as a facilitator, resolving conflicts related to natural resource management, and then as a mediator in a district court house in North Carolina. So I've honed my skills at anticipating people's needs, predicting next steps, and helping them achieve a specific outcome. I'm transferring all of that into my teaching and sewing experiences and creating retreats that appeal to traveling quilters. So my first is in Amsterdam this fall. We'll work with indigo and matter, which are plant-based dyes that create blue and red hues. After dyeing our own fabric, we'll then sew a small wall hanging on my fleet, my new fleet of featherweight sewing machines uh, that I'll bring with me there. So you don't have to bring anything. It's all included. Fabric, thread, backing, batting, iron, sewing machine, even the breakfast and lunches. There's two days of dyeing, a day of sightseeing, a day of sewing, and a day of hand quilting. At the end of the week, people will go home with a small project and about two meters of fabric to use in future projects. So right now, the workshop is about half full, and I suspect there'll still be at least one or two spots by the time this interview airs. And I'm planning the second retreat, which will be in Oslo. So if you miss Amsterdam, definitely check that out. And what are the dates for the two? Uh, the Amsterdam workshop is October 29th to November 4th, and the dates are to be determined for Oslo, but it'll be next spring. And, and you're also, are you involved with the Alsatian patchwork uh, conference? It is my favorite. I've been once. It's magical. It's oh, so really? much fun. Yeah, so you, yeah. you've been? When did you go? It must have been pre-pandemic, okay. maybe 2019. Okay. Maybe 2019 we were there. Yeah, it's it's so, it's, if, if you anyone gets the chance to go, it is a magical Magical conference. Yeah, the first time I went was in 2018 when I was working with a Studio Art Quilt Associates. And then in 2021, I had my first solo exhibition there. And I am a judge there this year. So there are... Oh, congratulations. Ooh, exciting. Yes. <laughs> I'll be teaching giant nested curves and many nested curves, two of my uh, most popular workshops, uh, as well as joining Susan and Carolyn uh, as part of the judging team. So they just just announced the um, the the pieces that have been juried in, and uh, it's super exciting. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with the conference, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So. Uh, I am. I do not speak French very well, and I am not sure I say the name of this valley correctly. But in the Alsace Valley, there are a um, there's a string of villages on one particular road. There's Saint Marie au Mine and Saint Marie au Croix. Um, Le, uh, I'm not going to say the other two, but there are four villages where this uh, this conference is held, and the 
event takes over various community buildings. So you go from building to building and village to village. They've got an excellent transportation system set up where the buses run frequently and reliably. And you get a feel for the area. It's not like going to a convention center in a big city that feels like any other convention center in any other big city. You really get a feel for this specific place. And I appreciate that so much. It's not just about the quilting, but also feeling the culture of the environment that you're in. It sounds so lovely. I feel like I'm missing out. <laughs> you should go. Yeah, Wendy, you are missing out. I'm, I'm dragging Wendy there one year. We're going to go one chill day. with my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, it is time to move on to our rapid fire quilty questions. Are you ready, Daisy? I am ready. Okay, Wendy, why don't you take us away? Sure. So what is your favorite time of day to quilt? 2 a.m. And where do you sew? In my studio in an old hospital. And do you wear shoes while sewing? And if so, do you wear socks or no socks as well? <laughs> I know it's supposed to be snappy. This one's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I have a pair of studio shoes. They are Viva leather slippers. Ugly, but comfy and no socks. Okay. So what best describes your sewing speed? Lead pedal or slow and steady? I'm kind of in the middle, but I'm on an industrial machine, so probably closer to lead pedal. And do you have a favorite snack while sewing? Gummy bears. I hate gum, but I like the chewing. So gummy bears are... Uh, Haribo or another yes. brand? The the other ones taste better, but I really need the like super chewy. So kind of low yeah. quality is my jam. <laughs> <laughs> Which workshop or lecture do you like teaching the most? I love Giant Nesting Curves. So between the two books, which one is your favorite? Quilting with curves or quilt modern curves and bold stripes? I loved working with Heather Black on the first book, but I've got to say quilting with curves. And from that book, what is your favorite pattern? Ladybird curve or spinning tradition? It's kind of a tie. For a first time curve piece, which pattern would you recommend starting with from quilting with curves? Fortune or the curved double star. Those are both good. And do you have a favorite fabric shop? Lately, I've loved going to Offcut in Bern, Switzerland. Uh, they sell dead stock material and it's super fabulous. And what's the last fabric you bought? So Offcut is actually a chain of these kinds of stores. And the last fabric I bought was from an Offcut in Basel, Switzerland. I picked up a beautiful blue chambray and some assorted scraps, even though I shouldn't be allowed to buy scraps because I have some. <laughs> chambray sounds like it's up at Amanda's alley. It's true. <laughs> and that's right around the corner from my in-laws. So it's going yeah. to be dangerous next <gasps> trip home. <laughs> it's really good. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, but, but. What sewing notion couldn't you live without? Those little circular leather thimble dots and my needle puller. Oh, yeah. What's your favorite roller size? A big one? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the biggest roller in all the land. Yes. I think, I've seen like a, I think I've seen like a 21 inch by 21 inch roller before. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I, I want like, like, you know, 36 by 6 yeah. inches or something. I don't have one. Okay. But that would be nice. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your favorite part of the quilt making process? Looking at the finished quilt. What's your least favorite part of the quilt making process? The rest of it. 
<laughs> really? Fair really enough. original. <laughs> you said snappy. I mean, you know, that's like. Oh, sorry. Oh, I feel like that sounded really judgy. I'm so sorry. It was judgy. I, <laughs> do, I do not mind. I am happy to be judged. And yeah, I mean, it's all a chore. Sometimes I wish I could just sit with a paintbrush and like, you know, put some paint on canvas. Yeah. But we've got to yeah. like cut it and press it and sew it and do it again. And it, it's a lot of work, but it's, you yeah. know, the end is worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It keeps you coming back for more. So. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So, what's one bad quilting habit you wish you give up? I'm fascinated by this. Um, I don't really have a bad. I mean, but like hunching over the sewing machine and the cutting table, or or being disorganized with my fabrics. That's it. All the other bad habits I love. I don't want to. I don't want to lose them. <laughs> the hunching is a. That's a. That's a tough one to yeah. Yeah, battle. Yeah. But it's, it's hard. And do you have a quilty crush? Yes. Uh, Rebecca Lambert, <laughs> Alexis Giese, Eric Wolfmeyer, Heidi Parks, Maida Natig. There's, there's a long list. I probably shouldn't have tried to narrow that one down either. But. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite recent make? Uh, the only thing I've made this year, I sent to Australia in May for an exhibition there. And when it comes back, I'll stare at it a while and see if it could be my favorite. And how many projects are in your work in progress pile right now? Ah, I've got um, six or seven and maybe a dozen other things that I don't actually intend to finish, but I'm secretly hoping I can repurpose into something I can get excited about. And when you're not at your sewing machine or at your studio, do you have any other interests, hobbies? Yes, baking, dogs, gardening, coffee, <laughs> sleeping. All the good things, all the good things. Yeah. So we've got one more question for you. And who are three accounts you think everyone should be following and why? Rebecca Lambert. I wish I had known about her when I was living in Southern Louisiana, but I didn't. She uses color and shapes and stitches in a way that just absolutely sings to my soul. Um, Alexis DC is making contemporary quilts that seem to effortlessly weave traditional motifs with modern statements. Um, the combination of the two creates these really unexpected and profoundly thought-provoking works of art. And then uh, my last one is Jennifer Candon. I just, I don't have any words. She's just incredible. I love everything she does. Fair enough. So on that note, we need to wrap today up and we hope that you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to contact any of us, we can most easily be found on our Instagram accounts. I'm at Broadcloth Studio, Wendy. I'm at the.weekendquilter. And Daisy. I am at Warm Folk. Or you can go to our podcast account at quilt.buzz or our website, quiltbuzzpodcast.com for our previous episodes and updates on upcoming guests. If you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and tell your quilty friends about us too. And if you have a moment to share what you love by writing a review on your podcast provider of choice, it would make our day. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. 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 Yay.